Welcome to episode 28 of Unsweetened and Unfiltered. As many of you guys already know, October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, so we decided to dedicate this episode to shining some light on this issue that affects so many women across the world. And do you want to share that number of how many women it actually affects in America, which is literally one in eight women? How many family members, how many cousins, how many friends do we have? Imagine one in every eight of our loved ones has breast cancer, has a chance of having breast cancer. It's so scary to think about, but it's something that's happening. And I think it's so important that we realize the signs and what to look out for, how to test ourselves both in a doctor's office and at home. Even in the most general terms, breast cancer is a cancer that develops from breast tissue. And just like you said, Zena, there are signs and some may include like a lump in the breast, a change in your breast shape, um, dimpling of the skin, which are is going to actually talk about sometimes there's also fluid that may come from your nipple um, a newly inverted nipple red or scaly patch of skin the look the signs go on and on but the most common denominator is is just for you to look at your body and to see if you if there are any changes know that that's a red flag oh absolutely we need to start paying attention to our bodies i feel like we kind of ignore certain things our body sends us signs and we kind of push those signs to the side because of our busy life because of our work schedule because of our friends and family and we have to maintain a social life but you guys breast cancer is the most common cancer in women not just in america but around the world i think we have this misconception that oh we're healthy we go to the gym we eat healthy i will not have any of these health issues Let's just say our guest ran a whole marathon and then she found out she had breast cancer. Like if somebody, she is somebody that is very physically fit and who ran a marathon and this happened to her. Some risk factors also for breast cancer include like um, just being a female, being, I mean, it's enough, we have enough (laughs) problems, but yeah, that's like one of them, being female, obesity, lack of physical exercise, drinking alcohol, hormone replacement therapy. And you guys, sometimes it could just be genetic. And that's what our guest, I'm not sure if she, you know, said it's a hundred percent from genetics, but our guest, which we're going to go into right now, she also told us a story about her mother and how her mother was diagnosed with breast cancer first before she was. Cancer in general doesn't discriminate against anyone. I mean, it can affect anyone in your life, male or female. Um, and I think it's, I, I, why don't you introduce our guest so we can talk a little bit about her story? Yeah, I think I should yeah. do that right now. <laughs> but you guys, our guest is the one and only Bassama Youssef. You guys probably already know her and all the work that she has done for our community, all the nonprofit organizations she's worked for. Um, but she is somebody who attended Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs. She graduated with a Master of Public Administration. Um, she also attended Smith College and she received her Bachelor of Arts in Government and Development Economics. You guys, I can go on and on, but she has such an extensive resume. I'm so proud of this girl. Yeah, and she's um she was actually also a strategy portfolio manager for the International Rescue Committee. She was also the director and CEO. Let me let me repeat that. Director yes, and CEO of Buy and Co LLC. She's also worked for Al Jazeera America. She was a senior program manager there. Um, she also dealt with like project management and business intelligence there. Um, she. <laughs> You guys, she was also a senior consultant at the Booz Allen Hamilton Incorporated. She's worked for UBS. I would love to work for UBS one day, but that's amazing. She's also worked there in her um, previous time. She's also done a lot of things on her off time. She was also the Global Leadership Council Board Member of Seeds for Peace. She's also the board member for, it's really hard for me to pronounce this, but Natakalam, I believe that's how you would say it. 
She's also done the AIDS Walk Washington. Again, she's helped our community and other communities in many, many ways, and I commend her for this. And on top of this, she just came out of her third surgery just a few days ago, a few days before, a couple days from releasing this episode, from sitting down with us and doing this episode. So this girl does it all, and she's the epitome of strength and resilience, and it's so beautiful. It makes me so proud of the women in our community for not letting turbulences and, and issues like this stop them from achieving the things that they still want to achieve in life and Basima is a prime example of strength in our community. The reason why she chose to do this episode is because she wants to be an advocate for breast cancer awareness and she wants us women to really take care of our health and I think this is some, something that we kind of like put on the back burner and you guys like we shouldn't wait until October for it to be National Breast Cancer Awareness Month for us to go get our bodies checked and she does talk about how she checked her own body and and this is something that you can do at home. And if you guys, if you see something abnormal with your body, do not brush it off. Do not ignore it because think, you could save your own life. Oh, you can. Absolutely. And I think that's going to be our advice segment for this week. Go get yourself checked. Yes. Whether it's in a doctor's office, preferably in a doctor's office, but even at home, like we're going to provide as many articles and, and resources. Research, yes. And resources that we can to teach you guys how to do that, because it's something that I don't even know how to do. No, like what to look for when it comes to your chest and stuff like that. I think it's something that we don't talk about often, but Hey, guess what? We all have a set of them and we yes. need to really like take care, them. Of them. <laughs> take care of them. Seriously, you guys. So again, please get your mammograms. Please also push your parents to go get their, get themselves checked. Health is very, very important. And she also shares a story where sometimes you may know more than the physician. When it comes to your body, listen to your body very listen closely. Listen to your body. Because she will share her story and she will let you know why it's really important to really trust your gut instinct. And sometimes not every physician is going to have the best interest um, for you. We've said this multiple times during this podcast and it's kind of become a theme, but pain is not normal. You should not ignore pain. You should not brush it off and, and attribute it to stress or exercise or whatever it may be. Listen to your body like Dunya says. If you feel pain, if you feel anything that's abnormal, uh, go get it checked out. Yeah. So if you guys have ever gotten a mammogram done before, share your story with us. Let us know how it went. And if you haven't, please go. And again, share with us that you've gone. Let us know that these episodes actually do make a difference yes. in your life and they have pushed you to do some some good. And this is the whole purpose of today's episode is to talk about breast cancer and how to prevent it and what to do if you do have it. So I really hope you guys enjoyed today's episode and let's dive in. Let's do it. Thank you so much, Basima, for joining us today um, to discuss such an important topic, something that you've recently lived through. But before we jump into that, we want our listeners to just get a, you know, a brief overview of who you are and what your background consists of, if you can just go into that. Hi, um, my name is Basma Youssef, and I am a first-generation American Palestinian Lebanese uh, woman who was born in Massachusetts and raised in um, in and around New York City for the majority of my life. Um, I attended Smith College, which is an all-women's college as an undergraduate, where I studied economics um, and government, and went on to get my master's from Columbia in international affairs and public policy, uh, with an emphasis on homeland security. Uh, by way of trade, my background professionally is I'm a management consultant um, with a focus initially in federal practice. Um, so I supported the Department of Homeland Security in a number of different uh, capacities. And when I 
was married and moved back to Washington, I joined Al Jazeera America and the executive office um, and the team before they shut down in uh, April of 2016. And at that point, kind of had one of those midlife crisis, like awakenings where I knew that I wanted to really focus on kind of NGO work and nonprofit work. And I pivoted to working in the humanitarian sector um, where all of my passions and kind of history and background collided. Both of my parents were refugees um, and came to the country in the 70s. Uh, first, they emigrated to England, and then they emigrated to the United States, where my father was accepted to a PhD program at Columbia. So we kind of had deep roots at Columbia University. Um, two and a half years ago, I pivoted to the humanitarian sector and work for the International Rescue Committee, which is a, an incredibly large organization that supports refugees, asylees, uh, displaced people, um, across the world, um, in the Middle East, in South America, and at our borders in Mexico. Um, I have since resigned um, at the end of April once I was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, I knew that I needed to kind of take the time to step away from work and really focus on the healing process. So that is where I am right now, unemployed and recovering from breast cancer. But I think it's so brave of you to take that time off and admit that, you know what, I need to focus on me right now. I think so many of us are so like in that grind where like we don't want things to stop. We want to keep living our life the way that we always have. But it's so important to realize like this is our health and we need to take a pause, collect our thoughts and like, you know, I need to focus on me right now and what's important. And I want to really thank you for your services, Basma, because that's amazing. All, that extensive resume right there, it's, it's mashallah, like you've done a lot of great work for the community. And I, I think everybody goes through that midlife crisis where they feel like, what am I truly doing with my life? What is my passion? What is my purpose? And for you to put all your time and energy in helping others is amazing. But yes, I do commend you for having the ability and the strength to actually like, yes, realize that you have to put yourself first. And it's, it's kind of interesting how at at such a young age that you were diagnosed with breast cancer, this is something that you would probably never have imagined for your life or your journey in life. And what's come, what's going to come next for you is a diagnosis of breast cancer where you can agree that it has changed your life completely. Before we jump into that, can we talk about your mom's diagnosis in 2018? Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, I, I can't ever forget it. It was, we had been routinely, we're six children. Uh, my brother is actually a neurologist. He's a, he's a brain doctor. Um, and we have scientists, engineers, et cetera, very progressive, like in terms of education, family. And we had been really pushing my mother to get screened, to get regular checkups, just to do regular physicals. Because like, I mean, like get, asking her to get a mammogram, let alone like just a regular physical was very taxing for her. And when she finally um, agreed to do it, it's it's almost as if we we were and we're not surprised. Like cancer is a is a very toxic, very hard word, and you're scared when you hear the c word. And I had been in a group team meeting when I got a text message confirming that my mother had been diagnosed with stage three um, breast cancer. And it was just, it was incredibly overwhelming. It was incredibly shocking. I immediately left the, uh, the, the workshop, the team meeting and had to really just take some time alone to, to process that my mother was that sick because before you really know the details of cancer, you just, by default of the association of the word cancer, you just think that it's immediately terminal and you don't know how to, you know, wrap your mind around that person's health 
what they mean to you, um, long-term, you know, outlooks on, on where they're going to be and suddenly like your relationship with that individual. So my mother was diagnosed in June and had a subsequent lumpectomy. Um, her cancer had spread to her lymph nodes. And so once cancer begins spreading, it stages upwards. So, you know, there's different stages, zero to four of cancer. So there's pre-cancer, then there's stages of cancer. Um, and it's all different depending on like where it's actually located. So it was in my mother's lymph nodes. She had the surgery and I just have to tell you, I think it's, it's the Palestinian refugee immigrant genes because she carried herself with like such strength. She never complained. I had to be sent to Jordan to work in our Jordan office to support the Syrian refugees for work in, uh, in July. And I was on FaceTime with her while she was going into the actual surgery. And she just, she just did it with such grace and humility. My mom's, I just get teary. It's the lack of complaining and never doubting God. And then after it was a very intrusive surgery, she was literally taking care of my brother's son and cooking like three days later, which was like shocking. Um, I have no idea where she gets the energy reserve, but she's, she's a pretty incredible person. She's had a, an incredibly traumatic uh, history from, you know, the refugee camps and building upwards and, you know, attending school with very few women um, in Jordan and, you know, marrying my father and coming to this country as an immigrant um, and as someone whose first language was Arabic and just kind of navigating her way. But she did it with such humility and grace that it threw me off when I was diagnosed because I was ashamed that I couldn't carry it as well as she did. And so let's just forward uh, past her surgery. And um, in July of 2018, my brother is currently living with my parents. Um, he was previously working at an American hospital in uh, Jinta, Saudi Arabia, and had been like on the lookout for symptoms of, you know, just, per, you know, as my mom was progressing and recovering from breast cancer and the surgery, noticed that she was going to the bathroom more frequently. Um, and, you know, something triggered in him as a son, as a physician, and he had her get uh, screened for co her colon. And by February of 2019, she was diagnosed with a secondary cancer, which is colon cancer. And again, I mean, like my mother is she's incredible. She went in for the surgery in March. It was the second day. And I was, I was doing the nights with her because they could see her during the day. And I lived in New York city and her, her surgery was in New York city. So I would spend the, the majority of the evening with her until she was kind of well, right. Getting into being, uh, getting to bed. And I remember the second day, the day after her surgery, I went to her hospital room and she was standing with the IVs and walking and then I told her she needed to rest and she just started running. <laughs> she was this like 67 year old woman, like running with the Ivy down the hall and like being incredibly Palestinian and like really nosy and like looking into people's rooms and like me apologizing behind her for like embarrassing the both of us and being intrusive. Um, but again, like she bounced back and she is 60 eight years old as of Sunday and sure. to have gone through two types, mashallah, two types of cancer in the span of eight months has been incredible. And she's been somebody like 
you use as an example, but again, and I'll, and I'll talk about it a little bit more later, somebody who, as I would be diagnosed with the cancer, it was very hard to compare my, my recovery or, you know, my, my diagnosis and recovery to my mother's because I wasn't as strong as her. Mine was a little more intense than hers, obviously. Um, and it was a different stage, but it was, it was me comparing myself to the way she handled it and how she composed herself. And also with all daughters, I didn't want my mother to think that it was her fault. And you have Arab mothers. That was the first thing she said is I cannot believe I gave it to you. I wish, I wish. That gave me chills right there because the guilt our mothers hold even after all, all that they do for us and they still have this guilt. It's, it's subhanAllah. That's the reason why they say paradise truly lies beneath our mother's feet. She's a very outgoing woman, but she's very closed in her emotions. And um, we've always had kind of a tumultuous relationship, she and I. And she had her favorites. I was my dad's favorite. He's going to hear this. I'm probably going to get in trouble. <laughs> um, but it's, it's a fact. Uh, I was very close to my father. I remember seeing, rather, I'll take that back. I remember my sister saying, you need to read what mom posted on Facebook. And her post was just, it was so heartbreaking. It was that she had wished that she had taken all the cancer. That's so sad. It's very emotional to talk about it because this is the first time I've actually really talked about it to anybody, right? Like here and there, you, you can keep repeating your symptoms and your diagnosis and your next steps, but you never talk about how you've actually experienced cancer. So this is very cathartic in a way. But it's also, I want people to know that are listening that you just came out of a surgery. People need to know that it was just a week ago that you literally came out of surgery. Once we start talking about second your surgery. diagnosis, yeah, second surgery. So this is very, your wounds, girl, your wounds are still very, very, very fresh. You know what I mean? Yeah. I've been kind of just like plowing through the surgeries. Um, my former dean, who is Dean Khadidi, Mona Khadidi um, at Columbia University, she was like a second, like a mother figure to me at, at school. She was very surprised. I was kind of, it was happening so quickly. And I told her, I said, I don't, I don't want to stop. I don't want to, I want to keep getting through this and pushing through and pushing through the recovery. Because if I, if I keep pausing and have these long gaps between surgeries and diagnoses and you know, recovery, I think I would go mad. So for me, it was just much more helpful to keep moving as quickly as possible. Before we move on to your story, Basma, how is your mom doing right now post all of these um, diagnoses and obviously her breast cancer recovery? How is she now today? She's feisty as ever. <laughs> I, again, have no clue why she has so much energy, but you know, our mothers, they are so selfless. And she is like the primary uh, like caretaker of my nephew, Unwad Jr., who's three and a half um, and who's very rambunctious. And she watches him and takes him and still manages to cook and clean and take care of her children, her grandchildren. And she's incredible while she's going through her, uh, you know, post-surgery of both cancer recovery. And she's, she's doing good. She's doing good. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. So. 
what advice do you give people who are listening who have parents that are not going to these checkups and stuff like that? Because recently I've had to push my mom to just even get something as simple as a pap smear. We were in the doctor's office. Me and the doctor had to literally tell her, lady, you're not leaving. You're going to get your pap smear. You have to do this. You're at the age where these checkups are mandatory. They're not just you know, something to be brushed off. It's like, I understand the fear that they have. They'd rather live not knowing than live with this. But it's like, I had a grandmother who had ovarian cancer and we could have saved her if we took her to her doctors. And that will forever haunt me for the rest of my life. So can you please like explain the the importance of pushing our parents to go to these checkups and to get checked up and checked out? So I'm not quite sure who the, the majority of the audience is, but solely speaking from like, you know, immigrant, hardworking always on the move, selfless, um, care for everybody but themselves type of parents, I would really push and recommend that you consistently, it does not matter how annoying you are, just keep asking them if they've gotten their physicals and their blood work and their checkups annually, semi-annually, especially over the age of 50. Um, and consistently stay on top of them with it, even if that means that you have to get their insurance, you have to find physicians that are close to them that they're comfortable with, that you have to make the appointment and that you have to go with them. Like put your parents, if they're reluctant or they're just stubborn, put their health at the forefront of your mind and at the forefront of their minds and just like be very, very pushy about encouraging them. And, and even if you have to like force them and, you know, kind of hold their hands to the actual uh, doctor's offices, taking them so that they see that it's an, it should be done semi-annually to annually. And, and, you know, just keep, keep pushing the idea that this is so that it doesn't become more serious in the future. Use stories like my mother, use stories like myself to scare your parents essentially to like get checked, you caring about their own health. Like I said, like just, you know, stay on top of them. That's what we did with my mother until she finally won. It's so interesting because I just read a, uh, a study by a professor at the University of Chicago who was saying that about 50% of Muslim Americans get themselves checked out for breast cancer, like get screened, compared to 67% of the rest of America. So we're like, yeah, some of us are getting checked, but the majority of us aren't. I would say it's even less. I would say too. I'd be curious to read this because talking about it from a community perspective, I have been going to mosques and I'm very community oriented. Like I really care about the Muslim and Arab community. I have never, not once heard an imam or a community leader encouraging our community members to get checked and to focus on their health. I've only recently started hearing um, very like younger, kind of more progressive liberal, and I, and I hate that phrase, but for the sake of the audience, like progressive liberal imams or sheikhs encourage people to really focus on their spirituality and mental health. But I have yet to hear it be taken as seriously at like a Friday Jama'a prayer or in any community setting where they're encouraging folks to go get screened and tested and an emphasis on the well-being of their health because it goes to show that in any language and any culture that they say, if you don't have health, you have nothing. Forget about your mental state. I mean, if your body is literally collapsing, that's the only thing you're focusing on and it limits all mental, physical health and happiness. So I would say that it's even less than that study. And I, I'd like to see what, what pool that they used. Yeah. And I'd like, I'd like to add another element. And the other element is, is that we're all either immigrants and we're first generation, the majority of um, American Arabs who and Muslim Americans who live in this country. 
And there's a stigma around bad health and hiding if you have health issues and hiding if you're suffering in, in both physical and mental. So I would say that that also affects our ability or our willingness to go get checked because nobody wants to talk about getting ill. Nobody wants to be pitied. Nobody wants to be have a stigma around their you know names or their reputation for being sick. I mean, there were, and we'll get to it, but the reaction that I got for even talking about it publicly was 50-50 of like the, the, the support and the encouragement. And then Basma, I think you should not be talking about this because it's, you have cancer and, and, you know, you know, why, so what if I have cancer, shouldn't I be encouraging people to get checked and, and to, to be healthy? What, so what, you know, and then it's no, but it's, it's, it's like almost embarrassing. And I think it's so, I always get encouraged when I hear people speak out about their troubles. I mean, because it does encourage me to go get myself checked out, whether it's, you know, mental health or physical health, it does push me in that direction. And I love that you're using your story to show people the right way of how to deal with situations like this. I believe for every one person that is saying that this is embarrassing and you shouldn't be sharing your story, there's a, a great amount of women and other people, not just women, who are commending you for doing this because you are reminding people you're doing, honestly, the, a really, really good deed for your community. And I, I honestly commend you because I'm somebody who's going to book my appointment for a mammogram that I never thought that I would need at my age. But let's just jump into your diagnosis and how you first found out you had breast cancer and how everything went down. So for over a year, I was experiencing a very dull, like incredibly dull, but somewhat consistent pain in my left chest. And I, and I had a mind around it. You know, I, I, I wrote it off many times. Um, I think I'm just anxious. I think it's just, it's like I ate something funny. Um, it's a stomach issue that's like getting into my chest. It's heartburn. But slowly, I kind of started vocalizing it to my husband, to a very close friend at the time, who both were men, and I'm not blaming them for being men, but kind of would write it off saying, oh, it's just like anxiety, or you went to the gym and it's just, you know, gym and, and muscle pain. And then it would be about October of 2018 into November of 2018, and I was training for a marathon. Um, and I just, I knew that I was getting more tired than usual. I knew that I was experiencing the chest pain, that dull pain had become a little bit sharper. And there were days that it were like evenings, like I would sometimes like kind of not be able to catch my breath. And I, again, would look it up because everybody Googles everything. And it would kind of show me that it was like anxiety. And I would just brush it off to like the marathon and finishing the marathon and work. Um, and then post kind of, you know, mother, mother's diagnosis kind of anxiety. And by January of 2019, I just knew that it, it couldn't be just anxiety or that it couldn't just be a s symptom of working out, that it was only consistently throbbing, not like pain that it would like overwhelm me, but like just a very dull, consistent pain in my left chest. Um, and I made an appointment. And if you've ever made an appointment in New York City, you would first be shocked that you can't ever make an appointment, even like within weeks of a time. It, it takes like literally they gave me a six week out period when I made a phone call for an appointment. There are so many doctors, there are so many hospitals, yet there are not enough appointments for the entire population of New York City. Crazy. Insane. So I went to my OBGYN because, you know, like most people's insurance, I couldn't just walk in to get a mammogram. I needed to see a doctor to get checked, to get a prescription 
excuse me, a script to get, you know, to be able to make an appointment for a mammogram. So on February 8th, I saw my uh, regular OBGYN at Columbia University, and she did the regular checkup of my chest, which you would later come to realize and find out that is a very shallow way of looking for cancer, especially breast cancer, because people's cancer is very different. My cancer originated from my breast duct where women actually create milk for their children. So it was internal and it wouldn't be until months after this checkup that it would break out of the duct and become a higher stage and be in my tissue and in my muscle and then into my skin. So I was checked and she said she felt only very kind of like dense breast tissue, meaning like I'm slim and I don't have a lot of fat in my chest. I'm not big chested. So there's a lot of like fat, like a breast tissue rather than fatty tissue. So when you do your own checkup, uh, breast examinations and everybody should learn to do their own breast examinations. I've, I've learned since I felt lumps, but they were normal lumps that people would kind of write off as, you know, during your period, a lot of women get cysts that come and go. Uh, you'll be, you'll have a little bit more of that lumpy feeling before and after your period etc. So she just kind of said, no, you know, there's nothing there. Um, let's keep our eye on it for six months. And, you know, I remember turning to her and just saying like, are you sure? You know, my mother was diagnosed in June with breast cancer. And I, I don't know if it's genetic, but do you, she, and then she kind of brushed me off and said, you're too young. We'll keep our eye on it for six months, six months. Let's fast forward to the day of my birthday. So you know, I have a huge weekend planned. It's April 14th weekend. Game of Thrones is it back on. We've been waiting hey. forever. Hey, <laughs> we're like throwing this huge birthday Game of Thrones party. Um, I, I like had a lot of people in town at the same time, like my closest friends. It was great. And I was having a great weekend. And I woke up that day and was hopping into the shower when I kind of just caught my like reflection in the mirror. And I noticed that my chest, on my chest, a piece of my skin was just pinching in. And I just kind of like did a double take. And like, I was really like jumping in the shower, changing to get ready because a million people were waiting. Um, I looked at it and I looked at it a little bit more closely. And I was like, this is not normal. Like your skin just doesn't naturally pinch. So it's like, just lift your arm up. And if you look at your skin, just imagine it pinching, just pinch it and it doing that naturally. Like without any assistance, my skin was pinching by itself. So I was staring at it. And then I just took my chest and I did like a, you know, like think of like when you wake up, like you stretch your chest out. And then like in the mirror, I notice this incredibly abnormal shape, a darkened shape on my chest, my left chest, where I've been thinking that the pain is originating from for a long time. And I just kind of said, huh, that's interesting. I better make an appointment. Like, I wonder what it is. And just because so much was going on like that day, like, and I was really happy and I'll, and I'll talk about that later. Like, I really think Aloha is just giving me this really good weekend with everybody that I loved to like prepare me for like the actual shock of being diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, I just kind of, I said, I'll, I'll get this, I'll make an appointment. And then you and I talked about this, but the next day is tax day, April 15th. Everybody hates April 15th. It's the day after my birthday. I think I'm the only was, one that files my taxes on <laughs> the same day. It's horrible. I don't think you're the only one. I think like 90% of the United States files their taxes and like the IR, like their website breaks, like literally yeah. like will crash regularly that day. So I'm scrambling to, you know, come Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones comes and goes. 
the next day is tax day. I'm like scrambling to do my taxes. Um, and then I wake up Tuesday and I, you know, it's a work day. And I say, I have to make an appointment with my OBGYN because I really need to, this is, this is crazy. Now I need to get this like a mammogram checked. I got to get this checked out. And so I call and they don't even say hello. They immediately put you on hold. Then the woman comes back to the telephone and kind of just says, yeah, we have an appointment in another six weeks. And I was like, I don't think this is something I I'm literally saying, I don't think this is something I should sit six weeks on. This seems to be a little bit more serious and she's brushing me off. And I finally just, I like, I, I kind of like snapped like something in my head. Cause like, I thought of my mom suddenly, I thought of this like pinching and the darkening. And there were two symptoms on the symptoms of breast cancer. Like you can find online at uh, breastcancer.org. And I said, I'm sorry, but I have a darkened, strangely shaped mass on the top of my chest. I'd been telling my doctor that I had this like dull pain and now it's pinching. And the minute she heard the word pinching, they were like, hold. And within 10 seconds, they were like, can you come in tomorrow? And I said, yeah, I can come in tomorrow. So I go into the office and I'm sitting there in my gown and, you know, the doctor didn't even come in. Like they didn't have the doctor as a nurse practitioner nurse practitioner came in who had been with the doctor the previous you know appointment that I had in February and she asked me to remove my gown and she just looked at my chest and gasped and she couldn't even catch herself with her reaction to me and it was it was quite literally in that moment that I just put my head down and I just I knew it was cancer I just I knew it and she came over with a tape measurement and she took the measurement it was a large mass she did the examination. She felt something. She examined under my armpit. She felt something. And she just tried to kind of look unfazed, but she was completely phased. And I just stayed silent. And she said, we need to make you a mammogram, an appointment for your mammogram immediately. Can you remind us of the, the time between the first time you've seen her and through the second time you've seen her? Like how many months have passed again? It was February 8th to April 17th of 2019. Yeah. In those two months, she could have, yeah. In those couple months, she could have easily have put you on whatever she needed to put you on. Had I caught it in February and it was intraductal, you'll, when you learn about breast cancer, it's the intraductal means it was in that breast duct. And then it became, it was like the carcinoma that broke out of the duct, which makes it much more serious because now it's actually not only it's not being it's not wedged into your duct where it's a little bit more manageable and there's a lot of different types of treatment for it. As soon as it starts breaking into your tissue and into your breast tissue and into that fat and then your skin, that means it's spread. And at that point, like it had spread, it got into my, within nine weeks, got into my tissue. It came out of the duct, got into my tissue, got into so close into the margins of my skin, traveled to my lymph nodes and spread in my body. And like, even to this point, like, Yes, I've had my breast removed and I'm taking hormone therapy because my cancer is 99% hormone positive. We have no idea. In like a medical phrase, the only thing the oncologist could tell me post mastectomy in this recovery now is there is such a thing as a rogue, the rogue cancer cells. Everybody has cancer cells in their body. It just is if they activate or if they don't activate. My estrogen and progesterone, it's hormone positive, activated my cancer. So it started growing. And the way that he, I remember, like he's a Lebanese uh, doctor, it's like one cancer cell is created, it starts really quickly snatching the really healthy cells and it starts layering, like growing on top of each other. So it was in my duct, 
it broke out, got into those areas, and I was forced either to have a lumpectomy or a mastectomy. And because I'm smaller chested, because I had less fatty tissue, I was going to either be have a lumpectomy, which means it's a partial, they remove the actual tumor, um, but be left with a, with a concavity. What that means is I was going to be left with a full hole in the center of my chest with no recourse to getting that any kind of plastic surgery done to make it look normal for the future. And given how close it got to my, and I hope this is okay to say in the podcast, but the tumor grew so much that it burst into my nipple and it was in the skin and where the margins were, it required that I had to take, I couldn't even save my nipple. I couldn't save the breast. So it had to be fully, fully removed. And with that removal is like, you know, there's other layers of, would you keep you know, just a flat chest, would you be okay with just the scar and the tissue? And, you know, in my age, my mid thirties, um, I'm very open and I was very open with all of my doctors to the point that I switched doctors because I don't feel that the physician at the Memorial Sloan Kettering was taking me seriously because I'm a very rare young patient looking normal was very important to me because I would come to find that like, I was incredibly healthy. I mean, I, I'd come off the backs of running a marathon. I went to the gym three to four days a week. I ate well for the most part. We all have our cheat dates and I love chocolate. Um, yeah, so I was clearly like, you know, I, I'm balanced. I'm underweight, but like a healthy weight. Being asymptomatic and looking really healthy, everybody would say, you just don't look like you have cancer. Like you look fine. And part of like looking fine was when they would look at me and know that I had breast cancer, their gaze would immediately go to my chest because people just thought that I would have no chest. And I even thought that I was not going to have a chest at one point. Like I knew waking up from the anesthesia and getting my breast removed, I had to make a decision. And I knew I had the foresight in my mind to know that if I woke up and looked down and didn't see a chest, like I think I would have had a mental breakdown personally. And so it was the first thing that I did when I woke up from anesthesia and kind of was coming to, obviously like people react differently. I was throwing up, I was yelling at nurses. Um, I was like yelling at my husband um, because I was really confused that I had two wires, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, and two, two tubes coming out of my body with like blood coming out of my body. I just, I could barely move, but I lifted my shirt and looked down and just said, Alhamdulillah, because they reconstructed the temporary reconstruction at the time with my compression, with my compression bra, and I could see something. So I, I, I didn't feel like I was losing everything in the moment. Like I knew I lost everything, but at the same time, I knew that I was going to look normal eventually. Alhamdulillah. So for me, it was important. So what the physician who is an incredible, incredible Palestinian American plastic surgeon who focuses on women who have breast cancer to help with the reconstruction. So he's not there for the cosmetic. It's technically cosmetic, but it's because it's coming off of, you know, accidents or cancer, et cetera. He and I got to a point where he would try to save as much of my skin as possible. So this kind of sounds gross, but imagine like they take your breast, they scoop away the tissue and the fat and everything. He saved my skin and immediately put a silicon implant in to help me stretch my skin so that in time I would have room to put the permanent implants in and eventually would. And what I've opted to do is I will get a medical tattoo on my chest to make it look like and mimic, you know, my previous like nipple. So the last surgery I had, um, eight days ago was a surgery where, you know, after the mastectomy, they put that temporary filler in for me to stretch my skin 
and I had, you know, multiple tubes coming out because, you know, even though I had been, I'd had multiple biopsies before my, uh, my surgery, I had a false negative test. And what that means is they saw that I had something in my lymph node, but the biopsy that I did at MSK came out negative. When I got to surgery, they double check no matter what, because it's there. Like they'll check your lymph nodes anyway, but I already had the lymph node. So they have to check it to see if it is cancerous because imagine a circle and like a very precise needle just takes this little piece through your skin and that piece comes out negative, but it's the other parts of that growth that was negative for cancer. So my luck, they went into surgery, they took the tumor, they removed my breast, the tumor, they went into the lymph node and it came back positive. And as a precaution, because I'm very young and cancer is more aggressive at this age and my cancer is a little bit more aggressive they had to remove all of my lymph nodes on my left side of my body. So if you know anything about your lymph nodes, it's kind of like your first recourse for the body kind of like filtering everything bad out of your system. And so it's like your drainage. And so they removed my entire drainage system into my, on my left side. And I had to live with multiple tubes and pouches to like get the blood to flow in my liquid and ensuring that my skin was getting blood flow on for a few weeks. And I can't tell you, it was like the happiest day like of my life almost yeah. getting those tubes like sucked out. And I was awake and it comes like right out of your chest through the sides. And I have holes in my side that luckily another wonderful Palestinian dermatologist who I've been seeing for a few years who lives in New York city, Dr. Um, Sam Jabber, he is going to help me with my post surgical recovery to use lasers to help me like get the um the amount of scarring that I have is very intense and it's gonna he's gonna help me kind of like diminish the scarring which is gonna make me feel more normal. This past Wednesday they went into my stomach and they went into my thighs to take flesh like fat out of my system to help with the reconstruction of my you know of my chest. And so I'm recovering from kind of like that fat grafting the complete reconstruction of my chest, um, both of my chest, um, and just that general post, you know, recovery. So I'm even amazed I'm up, but I'm like, I have to be up or I'm going to go crazy. Girl, God doesn't give us what we can't handle, but at the same time, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that it's easy. The hardship is still a hardship and it's truly horrible and it's truly horrifying and traumatic. So that doesn't take away from how traumatic this hardship is, but mashallah, you are one strong woman oh, and yeah, you are I mean... carrying it gracefully. And what what stage cancer are you at right now? Like, did you, I don't know if you mentioned that, are you stage three or what stage were you? It stages differently. And I'm, I'm between stage two and stage three. Um, once you have the tumor and it, it's becomes like, it breaks out of the duct and it's the type of carcinoma that I have. And once it starts traveling into your lymph nodes and it's gotten into my skin, it stages up, you know, I'm post mastectomy now post reconstruction And I will add that a lot of the mental trauma not only happened with like losing the the flesh and being diagnosed with cancer, it was, it's kind of the idea of, and you never know of like what to do next, because every single physician is going to have a different opinion. And it comes down to like the makeup of your cancer and like your post cancer recovery so that it doesn't come back. I was a strong advocate for myself. The first opinion that I got, and I love him to death, is Dr. Uh, Sada um, wanted to make sure to go as, gre- as aggressive as possible so that I would not have a reoccurrence, that it wouldn't come back and that I would live as long as possible. So 
Once I could get up and finally see the actual oncologist, I sat down with him and he had looked at the makeup, got a piece of the tumor, um, was able to kind of study the makeup of my cancer and immediately diagnosed a five month, incredibly aggressive chemotherapy. But I had kind of been like studying and asking a lot of questions and pushing physicians. And I knew that my cancer was hormone positive and HER2 negative. And that's a really important differentiation in breast cancer. And I knew that, and I kept pushing saying, you know, there's a lot of new tests out there, a lot of stuff coming from Europe. Um, One test in particular that's only been out for a few years in the United States that insurance doesn't even cover, but that you you can appeal or you're paying out of pocket to see whether or not your body would be actually, or the cancer would take to chemotherapy. And if you think of chemotherapy, I'm sure, what are your first thoughts? It's hair loss, all that stuff. Hair loss, your eyelashes, you're fragile. You spend hours with these veins, like these IVs in your veins. Nowadays, they have another surgery to put a tube into your chest to help the IVs going through your hours just dripping at like chemo into your body. And it's just the slow progression of being weaker and weaker and looking like you have cancer. And I just wasn't willing to accept it. And I wanted more opinions. And so they wanted me to move quickly, but I really was struggling and I didn't want chemo. And I was pushing physicians to help me find another diagnosis and another way forward. And I worked with another oncologist who got that test for me. And two weeks later, we got the results. And she said, I have great news. Chemo is not going to do anything for you. Like your cancer is hormone positive. So we're going to treat it with an aggressive hormone therapy. But you need to look into surrogates because you can't have children. We'd like to remove your ovaries, which was like a slap in the face. I mean, it was, and I really care about this physician. She's, she's a phenomenal, phenomenal oncologist. But I just felt so, I was so emotional because it's like I came in to find out, great, I don't have to do chemo. But then I found out something even worse, which is I now cannot have children. And finding out you can't have children with your husband next to you is like a slap in the face. I mean, it was like, it was so overwhelming that I I couldn't catch my breath. And I sat down, I said, okay, but what if I did chemo? Can I still have children? And she said, no, because it's your hormones that are feeding this cancer and the growth and we need to stop it. So then it's like, fast forward, I need to find an uh, oncofertility because, you know, people do IVF regularly and they get their eggs uh, removed and frozen for a time later on when they want to try to have children to do IVF. I didn't have a choice. And I had to like get that done as soon as possible because they needed to shut my ovaries down. So the next day I was researching all the fertility clinics, bouncing off costs. The cost is unbelievable. And insurance does not cover fertility, even if you're diagnosed with cancer, which is such an unforgivable sin to me that, and it's something I hope when I'm a little bit better that I want to be an advocating on, New York will become one of, I believe, 16 or 13 states that requires patients like myself to have insurance cover their oncofertility, fertility for cancer patients because it's a medical necessity. But insurance has an ability to opt out of state regulations, not federal regulations, but state regulations. And our insurance has opted out of that. So we were suddenly scrambling with all these unforeseen costs after insurance paying for fertility, which is completely unaffordable. And I can't believe anybody can do it, let alone somebody think, Allah, that I have the ability financially to be able to do this at this stage of my life, because I cannot believe 
the position. I kept telling myself that every day. I kept saying, Basma, you have savings. You have a supportive husband. You were able to pay for this. You're not going to go bankrupt. It is going to set you back in like savings to buy a house down the road and other things that you had hoped to do. But alhamdulillah, I have all of these benefits. I can't even believe if I was a single mother with two children who couldn't take time from work, who couldn't, who didn't have savings, who maybe had government assistance. I just, my mind kept wrapping around like, how do these women take the days off and not get paid at work to go to their doctor's appointments every day? I was in the physician's office every single day for months getting blood drawn. And that process of the IVF and the oncofertility, because it was very sensitive, we couldn't as many hormones as were going in, I had to be careful as how many hormones were going into my system because I'm hormone positive cancer and the injections, the self injections, like there was, I was so rushed in this process that like I watched how to give myself insane needles in Chicago at an event that I was at on YouTube. And I actually did it wrong the first time. And I was like, Oh my God, I don't even want to know what I injected into my system. And like, what, like what is going to happen to my ovaries yeah. at this point? You know? And and like, if anybody knows me, they know like the one thing I cannot handle are needles. And now I was forced to do eight needles a day was, it was like the most traumatizing thing. And then the, the, the surgery alone, where they have to put you under anesthesia to remove your eggs. And then the waiting, because I was in this like time crunch, because they were slowing down my like ovaries from producing hormones. It's this game of, and it's always a sensitive game of like, how many eggs am I getting out of my system? I have one chance to get eggs out of my body. And I only had X amount of eggs coming out and a certain that would make it to being an embryo. And that's when they're fertilized with my husband's sperm. So alhamdulillah, there's, you know, a few survived, but I didn't have the privilege or the option as other women. You'll, you'll, if you learn more about IVF had, you know, you could do it more than once. I couldn't do that. I had to shut my ovaries down. So then I went from that and that recovery full steam ahead to doing the full reconstruction. So it's just kind of been like one thing after the other that has kept me on my toes in terms of just like what I need to do and what my next steps are. And it's all to say, and I, if anybody out there has cancer and including my mom and they're listening to this, it's to say like, you know, you literally, you don't know if you're doing the right thing. It could come back and it comes back so often for women. Like it'll come back at a much more aggressive stage I have a very close friend whose mother was diagnosed seven years ago. She was clear seven years. They said she was cancer free. And just a few months ago, she was diagnosed with stage four and it had spread all over her body and it originated in the breast. So you, you don't know it's these physicians are also telling you, you do the best you can. You take the medications, you do the treatments, but you can, it can always come back. And when it does, it comes back tenfold aggressive. So that's, you have to live with that in the back of your mind at all times. Like I'm doing the best that I, that I can, but I don't know if it's going to come back or if I, I'm going to die in the future. I don't know. And that's the crazy part. Like we all die. We know this. Think of like, even just thinking about death, but thinking, think about knowing like, or thinking like I didn't do enough to save my own life. Whereas like I'm, I'm a strong advocate for myself and I'm doing as much as I can possibly bear to make sure that I don't have this cancer. And the treatment that I'm currently going through is horrendous. It's, if you're in your mid thirties, it's unnatural to have menopause. And the treatment that I'm going through is forced chemical menopause. So I'm getting like, right now I'm sitting here 
and I'm like 101 or two, I'm having hot flashes like you wouldn't believe. The side effect of my medication is I haven't slept in 31 days. Like I actually don't know how I'm functioning. Um, My brain hurts. My body hurts. Like I know that I need sleep for recovery, but a side effect of the hot flashes and the medication and the menopause is I cannot sleep. You have the hair loss. You have the hormonal skin issues. You have the bloating and everything associated with what women, but much worse at my age, go through in menopause and knowing that, you know, I can't have kids. I mean, maybe the only perk is I'm not going to, I don't get my period, period yeah, stuff, let's be real. Right? But let me tell you, one of the first things in, in like jest I said to my Muslim, like my husband and my family and other people, because, you know, they feel really bad for you. And I'm always trying to like make jokes about it. But I said, I mean, it wasn't even that funny, but I was like, look, I'm bitter because I don't have a week off during Ramadan. I'm actually like, I have no excuse. To, I, have to, I have to fast yes. every single day. There's no makeups. Like I have to pray every, every day now because like I literally like will not get a period and I don't have an excuse to not go to Jamaat prior to the mosque because I'm never going to get my period again. So Subhanallah, that's kind of like where I was at. Yeah. How you try to find the humor and even right. the darkest times. I have times. to say you were worried about not being as strong enough as your mom. Basima, you are so freaking strong. Like I'm sitting here and I'm like, I could never imagine going through what you've gone through. And the way that you're handling and the way that you came out of this, I mean, you're making jokes about it. And that's amazing that you've reached that point. My breasts look really good. It's kind of funny, but when um, men and women react differently and men are, I'm going to say, because I'm experiencing it, this is like a living experience is for some reason, they're kind of just like, they're, it's not that they're cold, but it's, they're more rational about the way they look at it. And they say, who cares that you can't like wreck your body and go through pregnancy. And they're like, and look on the flip side, I kid you not nine out of 10 men, which is kind of embarrassing. will say you're going to have a perkier, nicer breast than like anybody your age. And they're always going to look good. And I'm like, <laughs> why is that the only thing you That's think just of? guys. That's just guys. And it general. literally is. Yes. Or they'll turn to my husband and they'll be like, high fiving, like, Good for you, because you just got an upgrade. That's a phrase I literally looked at one of my friends and said, what are you saying to me right now? They were like, you have an upgrade. And then you have people like my sister, my older sister, who is, you know, she wears hijab. She's incredibly observant. She's the kindest human being on this planet. Like if I had an eighth of her kindness and her humility and her faith, I would be a much better Muslim individual. She was going to shave her head in solidarity with the chemo. She was like willing to, you know, in her forties, hold my child for me just so that I could have a baby. And she was like constantly like throwing funny things out in our family. WhatsApp, you know, we're Arabs. We have family WhatsApp groups um, (laughs) saying like, are you crazy? Like you're not going to have the saggy breast and you're not going to have the skin and you're not going to have to go through the actual birthing process. And the, you know, if it's a C-section and just kind of like, you know, even breastfeeding hurts and just giving me like, like really like just that positivity from like a woman's perspective, whereas guys are like super rational, they're like, it's an upgrade. You're going to live your life. You'll find another way to do this. It's it's just been funny to like watch the different reactions. Right. So Let's talk about, yeah, the relationships you have right now with the people who you love, like especially your marriage. What effects has this had on your marriage? Because like you said, this isn't just breast cancer. Now you're going through menopause. Now you can't have your own children. Like can't, you, you can't cure your own children. So what effects has this had on you between you and your husband, if you're willing to I'll, open up about I'll start that? with, and I am willing to open up about this. And I'm going to start off by saying, 
for the women in my life around me who always ask for marriage advice or, you know, getting to know men for marriage purposes, et cetera. One of the things I always say is, you know, the couple of things you want to look for in a man, and I don't care who he is, what he does in terms of compatibility is, is he kind and how is he going to react? God forbid, if something huge happens, is he going to be there for you or is he going to walk away? Can he handle even like minor issues? And you have to test that stuff. I don't really know how to, how to test it while you're like in the talking, dating, pre-marriage kind of like period. But I didn't have that in talking to my husband before we were engaged and married um, where something big came up that he would be test, like, tested and how would he react. But he was so kind and he's never stopped being kind. He's also like a, he's like a feminist. He's very open-minded. He believes in like, you know, doing chores and housework and supporting me. And he's like the most amazing, honest, wonderful human being on this planet. And when, and excuse my language, but like when shit hit the fan, how many like 33 year old husbands are going to just joke with you and be there and support you knowing that they're not going to have biological children, that their wife is suffering from cancer, that his mother-in-law suffered from cancer that all of these things are happening and I'm going to go through depression and I'm not going to have a job and I'm going to be achy and I'm going to have all these surgeries. What type of husband, like my husband has like stood by me every single second. He wants to be at every appointment with me, which annoys me by the way, because I kind of want to like, I'm like very independent. I'm like, can I go to the doctor all by myself once, you know, yeah. I'm, like, I'm not even telling him about appointments like the last month. And he was like, wait, you have, the reconstruction schedule on this day. I was like, yeah, I knew you were going to like freak out. I want to go to like every appointment and I don't That's want you to so be cute. sad and like take time off. He's so cute. And he's just incredible. And like, he just goes with the punches. It's just so supportive. Like every day where I'm like achy and I can't sleep and I'm home and I'm slowly recovering. He's like sending me things to do in New York, like which museums and exhibits I should go to and, and telling me that I should really take my time before jumping into work. And He's just like so lovely. And, and I've the first day after my surgery, I was very depressed. I just lost my breath. Like everybody, you know, typical Arabs, like a thousand people showed up at the hospital during Girl, Ramadan. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and I was like, I came out and was like, how do you look this way? Because I was like, I had to get dressed before the surgery because I knew a thousand people were going to be out in my room on the flip end of this traumatizing surgery. And like I predicted, everybody was there and taking pictures because, you know, Arabs have like no the best The best way to like scam the sign-in sheets and the nurses at the front desk because obviously there's like two per room or whatever that you're allowed to bring in guests. Just bring them auto be sweets. I swear to God, they'll love you and they'll be quiet and they'll just leave you alone. Well, That's what we did for my grandmother. We had our own room. Thank God, but also not thank God because we had a hundred people in that room breaking fast in the room outside because it was Ramadan. And then coming in and then the nurse had to finally like shoo people away because she saw that I was like slowly fading after like two hours when I woke up, you know, my husband just like, he was incredible. My family was incredible. My siblings were incredible, but I did experience like an example of like a very close friend who just, I don't know if it was, he just couldn't handle it or there was a lot of stuff going on, but he just like, wasn't there and said some like really hurtful things about my cancer that really bothered me and would like really affect me during my recovery. Somebody who had been there like every day for me for the past three and a half years. 
and who I felt was family, like everybody reacts to trauma and to life threatening diseases and moments like this differently, but it really hurt me like for the closest people who like didn't show up for me, but because I was vocal and because I have a large family, like I had an incredible outpouring of support and people who I never in a million years knew had cancer were coming and reaching out to me and telling their, me their stories. A Palestinian American woman who in her twenties had ovarian cancer and alhamdulillah has been married now has two children. Like just like very heartwarming stories of struggle and recovery on the flip end. And those like stories got me through every day and people visiting, cause you know, we're Arab and Muslim and just keeping my spirits up by like the amount of just like love I was getting was like incredibly important. Yeah. And that's why I feel like it's so important that you're sharing your story because the way that that lady helped you by telling her story to you, you're helping others by sharing yours. And it's so incredible. And something that I also want to mention is the importance of having that close knit bond with people because you could have been in that room by yourself and I think it would have made the process a lot harder. But the fact that you had that uplifting support, you know, that group of support there for you, it kind of pushes you up. So it's so important to keep family and friends so close, especially at times like this. I was very moody. I mean, I had hormones running through me. I was on the hundred medications after the surgery and I could barely eat. I had a crazy allergic reaction to medication. I ended up in the ER two days later. Imagine like you just suddenly see your new fake breast like turning red and black. And I was like literally suffocating. But, you know, like my husband slept on the couch so that I would have the bed. My sister would be like at my bedside with a bowl of soup waiting for me to wake up to like give me soup. I mean, they were very cute and like people, you know, sending gifts and like making me food and sending food and just kind of lifting my spirits. But one of the most important things was having family and friends know what their boundaries were when I needed the alone time, when I needed to be like suffering alone and giving me some breathing space and the friends who like would kind of gauge when those moments were that I needed it, but I didn't really need it. And I needed somebody near me. And I had an incredible friend, Nora, who just, she was like a godsend. Like she would just kind of show up and slowly open the door, clean up, leave me food and like leave, you know, when my sister who came from California for a week with me was like taking care of me. And just, just those couple of people who were just like such integral parts of my healing process, both mentally and physically, it was like, that was so incredible to have. How has this um, impacted your relationship with God in regards to your faith and your dean? Like, where are you at right now? Because sometimes I feel like when we're tested, it, it could go both ways. Either we strengthen our imam or we just like call us like we veer away. And then how has this also like played a role in your mental health as well? Right. So when I was diagnosed, it's like when you're diagnosed with something that's life threatening and cancer is life threatening um, and there's so many complications around it you start questioning everything. And when, the, especially when I found out that it wasn't genetic because I took the BRCA1, uh, BRCA2 test, which I encourage people to do, get that genetic testing to find out if it runs in your family because you can do some pre- preemptive stuff to not have cancer if you do find out, is everything was being like, I was asking myself everything. Like, what am I, why am I here? What am I doing? Why would God give it to my mother, then do it again. And then her daughter, I was like, how much more do you want us to bear? And I kept looking into things in, in, in our deen and in Islam 
on writings of pain and suffering and why we, we do it. And, you know, there's a lot of like, you know, d- different like schools of thought in Islam and, and some are to say that it brings you closer to Allah and he tests you to bring you closer. It's a test to see if you'll come closer. And I have to say that there were points where I just, the first two weeks, like leading up and we're talking, we're going into Ramadan, which is a very important month for me normally. Like I love Ramadan. I love breaking fast with people. I love going to the mosque. I love doing Tarawih. I love Eid. It's like, it's so exciting for me because it brings together community. I just like gave up on God and I didn't want to pray. And I was like bitter and angry that I couldn't fast a single day because I'd had, you know, surgery and I was recovering a lot of medication. And I was moving away from, from our Dean because I could not in my right mind make anything of the fact that he had made my mother suffer so much and he was making them suffer again through me and then making me suffer when like, I really strongly believe like I'm somebody of faith. I'm observant. I care about people. I, I, I try to give, you know, I, I just couldn't comprehend why he would do this to me. And I moved away. And I remember after surgery, like really feeling conflicted and wondering why like people weren't who I wanted to be there for me, weren't being there for me. And like, just in this moment of weakness, I just kind of like pulled out and said, I need to talk to the imam. I want to talk. I need to talk to somebody. I never talked to anybody. I don't see a therapist. I've been encouraged by staff at the cancer Institute. It's really important for mental health, especially with cancer patients. My husband was pushing me to see a therapist. He's super supportive. And I said, let me take the first step. And I want to talk to somebody because Islam is so important to me. Someone who's going to like help me understand like my relationship to God in that moment. And I, and I scheduled an appointment to talk to um, Khaled Latif, Imam Latif at the NYU Islamic Center. And some of the most important things I remember he said to me that stuck with me and like helped me like kind of come out of that was, you know, there's going to be points like you're tested in your life and you're going to go, you're going to be pulled to God and you're going to be pulled away from God. But like your test is like how you find your way back to God But even more importantly, the test that you're really going to have is, and something that God is, is understanding of, because our God is very compassionate and understanding is you can do the most you can do in that moment. Look, and I sound very emotional saying this, but it's like, you know, you lose your breast, you have cancer, you don't know if you're going to live. And like, it's okay, Basimo. And like the most you can do is just think that you want to pray. Just have the intention, even if you can't, because you're like suffering and you're in so much pain and so much medication, like that's rewarding, right? Like just that intention of that being close to God and just knowing that it's cliche to say that he will give you no more than you can bear. I don't necessarily believe that because I think that sometimes you can't bear it. People die in war. They're given, you know, they're, they're abused they're killed. Like there's things that he gives you that you can't bear. Like it's, there's, you know, bad things happen. But I, I took the suffering as a sign of like regaining after weeks, kind of a new relationship with God saying like, I am thankful that he did allow me to bear it, that I'm going to get through it inshallah, and that I can do it. And I have people around me because there's like small signs. Like I was constantly praying, like even istikhara on certain things. And he would give me some signs that I was like, maybe not paying attention to before, but I was like suddenly so much more attuned to. And I was like noticing them like, and I was like following those signs from God. 
And it's just strengthened my resolve. Like I have somebody I can lean on. I wanted to know, like, you know, there's new things like, and I'll talk about this as advice at the end of things you take away, but you know, my, this situation has forced me to really reflect on how am I living my life? What do I want this legacy, the short time that I have on earth? And personally, because I'm, you know, Muslim, I, and I, I believe in an afterlife. Is this how I'm going to go out? <laughs> Literally, it was like, is this how I'm going out? Are the things I'm doing getting me closer to God? And is this how I would want to live my life, knowing that there could be an end and it could be a lot sooner than I expected? And it's kind of like really starting to help me shape the way that I want to behave, you know, in a certain way, like better and be closer to God post facto. So subhanAllah, that's I mean, because that's how I I initially think of God right away when I go through any trials or tribulations. And just the way you explained it was just so perfectly well said. It does test your relationship with God. But at the same time, I I commend you for going and seeing an imam first and talking to him and getting a better perspective on that. And I think it's important. I think you also said that even an imam seeks therapists, needs a therapist themselves. Like I hope he's okay. I think he's open about this, but he is so wonderful. And he's so open, right? And he was even saying like, you know, a lot of the burden in the Muslim community, not the burden, I'll take that back, excuse me, is to say that people reach out to him for everything. And it's heavy. There's heavy stuff going on in our community. And it's heavy knowing people look up to you and need, you know, words of advice and strength all the time. And he was saying that he too needed those words of support and advice and another opinion. And that you know, kind of to my shock, to be really honest, like he sees like a white dude as a therapist. Like I thought he would go to like another Muslim, do you know what I mean? And he was like, no, are you crazy? Like, I don't need like, like I'm always in our community. Like I need like fresh perspective. I need to talk to somebody else. And that's kind of like, he also helped me finally come to terms because there is a stigma in our community with therapy and mental health. Like I would be lying to you both. If I didn't say that I'm not depressed, there is, I'm depressed and I'm finding ways to like work around that and like strengthen like my mental resolve to kind of pull myself out of this and, and be strong for like my here and now and for the future. And I'm always been shy to talk to a therapist, but now like I've slowly made a list of therapists with people's, you know, recommendations. I'm reaching out to them and I'm going to make my first appointment next week That's awesome. to do that. Yeah, that's something also to take away that no one is above therapy. If our imams are seeking therapy, then, you know, you shouldn't be embarrassed to do so. It's something that I think we should all encourage. Definitely. Regardless of even if our imams are seeking therapy or not, but now that they are also allowing us to, or giving put, giving us that push to go seek therapy, yeah. that's amazing in itself yeah. too. Because you don't know how many other imams are seeking therapy or anything like that, but just... There's no shame in self-help. Absolutely. And if that, self, if that self-help means talking to a professional who can get you through issues or help you find ways to get through issues. There's no shame in that. Absolutely. There's nothing in our religion or our culture. Well, there's a lot in our culture. Actually, I take that back. But in our religion that says you can't seek help from somebody who's like a professional. You're, you're right. And I was going to ask you, how are you really truly feeling like just today sitting right now in this moment? I know you said you're depressed, but what else is going through your mind? Because this is something that you've just faced within a span of a few months and it has changed the rest of your life. Every single day it's different. And a lot of it depends on, you know, things like how much physical pain am I going through? Like, you know, Thursday was horrible, horrible. And 
another day that's very difficult for me is the day that I have to go in for this monthly injection that I'm required to take for the rest of my life to keep my ovaries suppressed. You know, it's like the trek just getting to the hospital and like knowing like, oh my God, I have cancer. And like just being on the bus was like, Donald Trump was in town for the United Nations and like cabs weren't functioning. Subways weren't functioning. I got on a bus, but had to walk 20 blocks and I could barely move after the surgery to like get up to the breast cancer center sitting in a room with the patients is so heartbreaking, especially the patients, like I said, who are doing the chemo that looks so frail, who are these beautiful, strong women, like who have the IVs in their system. Like those are moments when I'm in it where I'm like crying and I'm just like sitting there and I know that's, that's my life now, you know, then there's other moments where I'm like pushing myself to have energy and like seeing friends and them not treating me differently. And looking forward to stuff. So every day it's different. It's not to say, I mean, it's, it's been hard, but with like, you know, taking it slowly and taking the right steps and thinking about it day by day and not thinking about future problems and just really focusing on like my hour by hour moments and being kind to myself is like the only way that I can actually handle this. I, I truly hope you stay surrounded by people who give you happiness, give you the support that you need, make you feel like yourself and understand that when you do need your space as well. And I commend you for being the strong woman that you are for sharing your story. Again, like you just came out of your third surgery just a few days ago. So it takes a lot to be able to talk about something so traumatizing that maybe you even haven't wrapped your mind around yet. So thank you. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts, Basma. And I will keep you forever in my du'as. And I truly hope you have a a safe and speedy recovery. Yes, prayers and du'as, really, I I really believe in them. And I appreciate how strong or how strong your faith is, because that's just a beautiful thing. Before we let you go, and I really don't want to let you go. Your story is so inspiring. Like I could talk to you about this for hours, but I know, girl, you're out in D.C. right now. (laughs) So you definitely want to see your friends. But what advice do you have for those who are listening right now, those who may be fighting cancer, those who have even gotten a checkup? What advice do you have for them? A few things. Um, one, it's like incredibly important, male or female, that you're an advocate for your own physical and mental health. You shouldn't have to wait around, like we discussed before, for any bad symptoms and like really you know, progressive symptoms to like get those regular checkups, just get the checkups. Insurance covers it. Make the time. I know it's annoying, but like, would you rather have something very minor or would you rather maybe down the road find out, you know, like my mother that you have cancer down the road that's like progressed very much. So be an advocate for yourself, get out there and do the the work early on, get those regular checkups. Um, two, it's, it sounds so cliche, but it's take care of yourself. Like whatever that means, if it's like eating well or sleeping or exercising, I mean, I didn't, you know, I didn't do anything to have cancer, but there's other things that I've am positive. I've avoided by being healthy, by exercising, by like being outgoing, by seeing friends, by, you know, getting the regular checkups, like things I can control by doing things that take care of me or things everybody should be doing so that you can like control the things you can. Whereas, you know, my cancer, I couldn't, but I, I've been advocating and trying ever since. I don't think that anybody should wait. And this is really hard because it's always hard to think about things in the future. Don't let something like catastrophic 
happen to you be the catalyst for you to do anything in your life, be it like get those regular checkups, be it chase a career that like you never thought you could do or that you wanted or having the courage to talk to the guy or the girl that you want to like, don't let it be like this catastrophic event where you don't know how much time you have left on earth to do the things that you want to do. And that sounds so cliche, but I'm like a living like example that I have something catastrophic that I waited to have children because it was something I wanted to wait to do. And then I can no longer have children. It's like, don't wait for that catastrophic event to take that leap, to do that thing, to talk to that person, to be more religious, to like travel to, you know, X or Y country, et cetera. So I encourage people to like really reflect on like where they are in their lives now and make those lists, like just make the list and like do the things you want to do. And then lastly, I would say, you know, I'm pretty, I'm like an alpha. Like I was, you know, I wanted to have the right, like, you know, degrees and from colleges, I wanted to have the right jobs. Um, I was constantly chasing like that, that resume and like everything for the, for my future. And I like literally never thought of like my moments now. And I realize now that it's, and you'll learn this when like you begin working, if you want to work out and like you're, you know, bodybuilding or doing something like losing weight or doing whatever it is, like it's the consistency. It's like, stop thinking about the future and start focusing on like the really good habits physically and mentally, like day by day, because that consistently builds and that like helps you have that better future, whatever it is that you're looking to do. So those are my pieces of advice from everybody. And then maybe the last thing I'll end on is whoever you're hoping to have by your side in any capacity. Like I've been blessed with my husband and my family. And like I said earlier, it's knowing that I had that partner who was so trustworthy, who was so loving and understanding, who shared like my perspective and my faith and who could handle. Do you speak Arabic? In Arabic, we say, yes, girl. Be- like like he holds me up and he can handle this massive trauma that we're both experiencing. Cause it's like, we're a couple, we're both experiencing. I'm physically and mentally experiencing, but he's mentally and physically experiencing it with me and find that partner who is kind and who is like, not going to shy away from like anything happening to be by your side. Because like, you know, that's like the kind of love that I think everybody deserves. That's a different type of commitment that we need to really, truly look for, honestly. And I know you said earlier something about like, yeah, it's it's hard to tell like if this person's going to be able to handle these future things. But sometimes you got to see how does he how does he react to other people's situations? How is he towards his family, his friends? Even is he small kind? little inconveniences. Yeah. So it's chase it's, chase yeah. the man who is kind. Yes. Who is good, who has faith and like, don't chase the materialistic things. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love that. I love that. And I, I don't think we can thank you enough for coming on here today and sharing your story with us and sharing your story with our listeners. It's, it's a tough one, but I'm, I'm so happy that you decided to share your story with us. Um, but before you go, can you let us know where our followers can find you? Because I'm sure they are going to want to. And I am happy and I really mean it um, to talk to anybody who is going through this or who is scared or who wants to talk about their, you know, diagnoses or anything. They can um, find me on Instagram. I do respond to those DMs. Um, at ba- it's, I'm Basima Youssef. 
or, and ask me for my email address and I'm happy to like share my private information with them to talk to them. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll definitely share it. Thank you. Thank you. Basima. We'll keep you, your mother and your entire family in our prayers. And I can't wait to see what else is in store for you. And I know you're going to be a great advocate for this. So thank you so much. Thank you, girl. Thank you. My pleasure. Welcome back to our unfiltered afterthoughts. I must say, Basima made a great point in regards to our parents' health. And this is something that I can relate to recently. I mean, my mom is now at the age, actually, both of my parents are in their, like, you know, mid-50s now. And I feel like this is a time where they really do need to go to the doctors, get checked up, checked out, and all that good stuff. And it's really hard. It's a fight that you're actually fighting with your parents to go to the doctors. I don't know if you can relate to that, Zaina. I'm not at that point yet, alhamdulillah. But I think that we all are going to hit that stage where roles are reversed and we have to start taking care of our parents and that's scary to think about that's what i'm trying to say where i'm at that point right now where roles are reversed like it was at a point where my parents were making um all these appointments for us when we were younger but now it's like our turn and i think it's because our parents come from a generation where their health was put last like they really cared more about their children more about us our well-being putting food on the table it was always like about everybody else and they're so selfless that they tend to forget about themselves and their own health like yeah girl i was at a doctor's appointment i had to like push my mom to get a pap smear and i'm like lady it's just a pap smear it's something so simple taking our parents to the doctors and it's something that they constantly tell us to do if we have like a simple you know flu or cold or whatever they're constantly pushing us but i i I do wonder why it's so hard for them to get to the hospital is it that generation that difference of like you know constantly worrying about other stuff a lot of our parents are immigrants and they came from different countries so they had other things to worry about not really our health or whatnot so it is it it is something that we constantly do have to push our parents because it is important i mean health it's what keeps them alive Yeah. And I just hope the takeaway from this episode is to just really check up on your parents. Um, Just like Basima said, I don't care what pressure them to go to these doctor's appointments because you could truly save their life. Like when it came to my own grandmother, honestly, if we noticed right away the differences in her body, weight loss, all that stuff, and we took it seriously rather than listening to her and saying, I'm fine, we could have saved her. And that's just something that I think we would live, we are going to live with for the rest of our lives, knowing that we could have saved my grandmother from her stage four ovarian cancer. And that's a thing like when it comes to the cancers there's stages to it and if you can prevent somebody from reaching upstaging their cancer that would be amazing and all it takes is just understanding your body understanding how sometimes your body feels a little differently and everything and another great point that Basima had was don't downplay the hardships that you're facing because I think you and I kept saying oh my gosh like you're so strong and she's like but what you guys are going through off mic you guys are so strong right. too she's like don't downplay and it's true like we shouldn't compare each other's struggles. Oh, yeah. And we constantly do. I mean, I was telling Basima about my this little procedure that I had. And I'm like, it's nothing compared to your surgery. And she's like, no, like, don't say that. Pain is pain. Yeah. And everyone experiences it in different ways and handles it in different ways. And just because my pain is on a scale larger than yours doesn't diminish your pain at all. Absolutely. So this episode... Like I said, it's a, it's a very hard episode because we spoke to a guest who's still going through this. It's not like, oh, hey, I'm done. I survived this. This has yeah. been years. No, it's been only days since her last surgery. So 
we make these episodes, we put these episodes together to give you guys resources and to, you know, help you guys in your day-to-day lives. And I think a mammogram is like the first step in taking care of your health when it comes to breast cancer prevention. So definitely check yourself out. We'll try our best to provide resources and how you can check yourself out at home in front of a mirror. But the important thing is just please take these episodes seriously when it comes to your health, take care of your health, Put yourself first. Listen to your body. Listen to your body. Yes. You know, put us on pause and listen to your body, <laughs> ladies, because that's like the most important yeah. thing. I really hope you guys enjoy this episode. Please reach out to Basima. She wants to be an advocate. I mean, she truly is an advocate for this at this point, And she's here to help you guys out if you guys have any questions. So take care. And inshallah, we'll see you guys next week. Bye.